0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Animation Composed, a squiggly online animation magazine podcast special on the relationship between music and animation. So get settled in, as we have over two hours of exclusive composer interviews and standout music selections for you. squiggly listeners welcome to our podcast special animation composed this is going to be an exploration of uh i'd say the harmonious relationship between animation and music uh, i'm ben mitchell managing director of squiggly online animation magazine and i am joined by squiggly contributor wes allard wes how's it going very well ben how are you good 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 did you have a nice christmas it was
1: a uh, very nice um Sort of nice to have a, a bit of a rest now, but yeah, nice to catch up with uh, with all the family. And uh, uh, must say, I'm quite quite exhausted. Been very busy, but um,
0: now I've got a few days of, uh, of relaxation. Mm-hmm. I thought this would be a nice sort of time to slide this in. This is uh, this has been an idea that Wes and I've been batting back and forth for a few months now, uh, and I think now that we've established in the last few months that the Squiggly podcasts are going to have some more thematically grouped spinoff series going forward. Yeah, that felt like the time was right to introduce another new concept, plus it is the first week back after Christmas, so people who aren't still on holiday, they might want something musical to lift their spirits, eh? Absolutely, yeah. Yes. So basically this is a podcast special about uh, the relationship between animation and music, it's something that is a subject I think we're both quite interested in, and if the response is positive, we're going to take it forward from a one-off thing to another full podcast series, and uh, as well as the usual interview segments. Uh, We're also quite keen for it to be something of a composer showcase, maybe talk a little bit about the sound side of things as well. And we'll have some actual music people can listen to while they're working or traveling or whatever. It's kind of a squiggly radio sort of thing. Yeah. So uh, so first off the bat, the uh, wonderful piece that opened the podcast, it was composed for the short film, But Milk is Important which is uh, one of our favourites from recent years. It was a student film from Volder University College. And you can learn more about the film itself. We have an interview with the directors Eirik and Anna up on Squiggly. That music is by Cardiff-based composer Phil Brooks, and you can check his stuff out at philbrooks.com. It's a lovely piece. I thought it'd be nice to kind of kick things off with. As is this next excerpt from the score to a wonderful film called Coda, directed by Alan Holly, and the music's by his brother Shane. I really love this film, as well as having probably the best animated faceplant I've ever seen. It's a tremendously warm and haunting tale of a man coming to terms with leaving his life behind, to which the music contributes immensely. And here's some of it now. That was from the score to Alan Holly's Coda by his brother Shane Holly, who can be found online at shaneholly.ie. And we also have an interview with Alan about the film that you can look up on Squiggly. It's a film that remains one of my absolute favourites of the last couple of years, so do hunt it out. So, an animation music podcast where did this idea come from? Because I imagine to some people uh, it's sort of uh, from out of nowhere. As uh, some of you may know, Quite a few of you, I'm aware, don't whatsoever. I was talking about this with someone I've known for years at math, and she had no idea. (laughs) Uh, But when I'm not doing Squiggly, or the regular animation freelance work I do, or writing books about animation, or producing podcasts, or making my own stupid little films, I also make music, which for a long time was a sort of 50-50 divide of my workload, like most of the visual work I did was informed by the music side of things. Until I did the MA in animation uh, nearly 10 years ago now, and basically animation won as far as the the viable career going forward. I just wanted to tell stories, and it was also an easier thing to find work in. But like with any form of creative expression, you can't really turn it off, so I still do music as a personal thing, and I sideline in doing production music cues, uh, as well as independent commissions here and there. And you know, sometimes if I'm working on an animation project, I can do some stuff for that, and making my own films, of course, it comes in handy. To be able to do the music and sound too, if need be. Where's regular listeners of the uh, Squiggly podcast, they'll have heard your recent interview with the folks who did the new Ice Age film. Mm -hmm. We talked to them a few months ago. So um, I think we chatted a little bit about uh, you and your work then. But in case they missed that, maybe you can give us a little recap about uh, who you are and what you do.
1: Yeah, so um, I also uh, probably finished uh, university about 10 years ago. Um, I did my uh, did my degree up in Sunderland, and then I did some postgrad studies and at the same university in animation. Animated pilot for a new uh, pitched animated TV series that was going on at the time. While doing that, I was um, occasionally sort of writing music for people for their university films. More of a hobby, really. I was sort of um, you know buy me a buy me a pint of beer and I'll write your music for you. And it was uh, <laughs> never saw it as a thing I was going to do as a job. Uh, as time went on, I found that it was for me. Um, I was sort of easier for me to get get some music work. So anyway, um, uh, music one, and um, that's what I've been doing ever since. So um, I now uh, yes, sort of do music for animated films and um, usually sort of um, sort of corporate educational explainer videos. Um, sometimes some short films as well. Um, and also uh, I do a bit of writing for Squiggly from time to time as well.
0: Well, you also, if people were with us from like the olden days, you did the original Squiggly theme. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, the piano theme. Oh, yeah. I think we, we we talked about this when you were on last time. It was a great tool to have for a, whenever me and Steve would hit a brick wall. We could play one of your uh, link cues and get us out of there. <laughs> yeah. Now the podcasts are generally shorter and we tend to just sort of chat and then do the interview and then we're done. But, yeah, that was a good thing when we would, like, just go off on tangents and just be like, okay, clean slate.
1: But I was very glad, though, when it, when it went for a bit of a revamp. Um, and um, so now you, you've uh, you've took my tune and you, you did some some magical wizardry with it. It needed freshing out.
0: I think, yeah, these, it's because it's kind of a ragtime piano thing, isn't yeah, it? So yeah. that's the kind of thing that you could see easily evolving. Yes. What the Squiggly podcast has sort of become, as with several... This happens quite a bit. It's become a bit of a production music graveyard for me. Whenever there's, you know, a a music cue that needs to be filled, I'll sort of go through. Okay, what did I never sell? (laughs) So for a while I had like a shuffle song. Mm -hmm. That's sort of what the theme is now. And then for a while it was kind of a mashup of the two. What I quite like is the uh, Christmas thing, which is like kind of a combination of your original podcast theme and then just like Mm. weird christmas music it's like music you'd hear in like a episode of sesame street or something yes yes which uh, i was reminded of because of course last week we did the christmas podcast and i keep digging that one out each year when we have uh, christmas interviews so you know these motifs linger on Mm -hmm. so i think another revamp is on the cards soon maybe this venture will be a kind of catalyst for that Perhaps, yeah, perhaps. Uh, In the meanwhile, like I said before, we're going to be bringing you a mix of interviews and some music. To kick things off, on the interview front, I've got an interview with a composer who's been steeped in the world of independent film scoring for a good long while. I believe this year marks his first dabblings in composing for an animated project. Uh, His name is John Eric Kerder, He hails from Norway. And I've been a fan of his for a while now, Uh, well over 10 years, I think my enthusiasm for his work stems from something of a rapacious appetite I developed in my teens for music that was, if not outright dissonant, certainly challenging as far as what we consider conventional structures of music to be, whether film scores or pop songs or really everything in between. So in my teens and early 20s, I drank in a lot of music from lots of alternative record labels. One particular label called Ipecac to this day has a great eye for just that kind of music, regardless of genre. They've released some of Carter's albums. He's also put out some on his own label. One in particular worth checking out is called Junkyard Romances, which is a sort of multi instrumental smorgasbord of fabulous music and soundscape. It's kind of a concept album about Poland. Probably my two joint favorite albums of his would be uh, Music for Movie Bikers, which is like film music for non-existent films, and an album he put out earlier this year with Mike Patton called Bacteria Cult, and that's sort of similar. It has a very cinematic film music vibe to it, sort of splashes of Morricone here and there. Uh, It's absolutely wonderful. And to my delight, with this being probably one of my favorite albums of the year, I recently learned that Curda... Head scored his first animated short. Mm-hmm. And it's directed by the brilliant Rune Spance. And it's adapted from an idea by Dave Cooper, who's an artist I have a lot of time for. Some of you who listened to uh, the Ren and Stimpy podcast I put together a few months ago might remember there was some discussion of a bizarre comic book anthology called Hellboy Jr., which was helmed by a guy called Bill Ray, who was one of the Ren and Stimpy artists. I'm a big fan of that book. It's really, like, dark and twisted. It has very little to do with Hellboy, even though Mike Mignola's involved in it. It's mainly just an anthology of very bizarre stories and very dark humor. Uh, Dave Cooper was one of the artists on that. And he's done some really wonderful adult graphic novels, as well as children's picture books, which is kind of an interesting balance of uh, body of work. And at the moment, he has a show on Nickelodeon, which is called Pig, Goat, Banana, Cricket. I think I got the order right, which I don't know. Have you ever seen that show?
1: I haven't, no, no, I haven't. I'm intrigued, intrigued.
0: It's very hard to just. I thought it might, when I saw the title, I thought it might be about, like, cricket, the sport. It's actually about a pig, a goat, a banana, and a cricket, as in the animal, that all live together. (laughs) It's just unabashedly, like, gleeful insanity. It's 2D, so it's more representative of his illustration style. It's right up my alley. This story for the new short film that was taken from an idea of his, it's called The Absence of Eddie Table. Mm -hmm. And it's been doing the festival rounds. Uh, We had a correspondent, Andy Jewell, who caught it at the Ottawa Animation Festival, and he had some very positive things to say about it. I'm wicked jealous because I haven't seen it yet. Uh, And it kind of kills me because it's got, as well as Rune Spans and Dave Cooper and John Curder, it also has Mike Patton, who did the record with John Curder this year. Uh, He does a voice. So this film came out of nowhere has some like four of my favorite people <laughs> and I haven't seen it yet hmm. but i'm I'm keeping my eyes very much open for it and I don't usually gravitate toward the CG stuff like it's not 2d like pig Goat banana cricket is it is definitely CG but it's such a great CG style it looks wonderful did you see the trailer
1: yeah I haven't seen the whole film but I've seen the trailer and it's a good demonstration of the music as well it's not really your typical CG it has a very um not not a polished sort of CGI look. It almost looks like it's um, it has it has more more character and it's very very original. Sort of lends more to something you could imagine seeing in stop motion and CG. If that if that kind of makes sense.
0: Yeah, I mean there is a great deal of polish to like the photorealism of the rendering, mm-hmm. but the design very much has yes. that Dave Cooper kind of crudeness. Dave Cooper's work is really hard to find in English. I've only got a couple of his books because it's so hard to find them in English but just to look at even you can just have a look at his website and stuff like he's, he's really an interesting artist and i think that they've definitely captured that essence here mm-hmm. uh, and what a treat that one of my favorite musicians has done the score for it just in time for our new music and animation podcast <laughs> uh if we punch up the trailer here's a little taste of what's in store So, there you go. That's a little sniff of the absence of Eddie Table. What I'm going to do here, I'm going to put a link in the timeline of the podcast. Mm-hmm. So, assuming you're listening via SoundCloud and not some other skull-duggerous method, you should be able to click a link and you'll be taken to another SoundCloud playlist that John Curder recently put together of his other film music, which is worth a listen. Uh, of course, you can also check out a whole bunch of his stuff on his website. He's on Spotify, Bandcamp, all the usual places. But in the meantime, it's an absolute pleasure to bring you guys an interview with John Eric Curder, composer for The Absence of Eddie Table.
2: Yeah, so this Eddie film, we've been working on it. I mean, I've been in from, I think, the start in 2013.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So there, there's there been many rounds uh, up until this uh, finishing line. We've tried all, all kinds of different stuff. And, um, you know, it's really nice to have time to try different stuff out and, and just... Um, you know, experiment and, and uh, you know, see where it goes. I mean, we were kind of happy with the music like a year ago. Mm-hmm. But then um, I did a last round where I kind of stripped out more of the melodies and I did more, um, almost like free jazz drumming, but mm-hmm. it's or loose drumming, but it's not, you know, on, only on toms, mm-hmm. uh, lots of toms. So that was kind of... The last round where that we turned, I, I turned it all over to more like a drum score. Uh-huh. Lots and lots of drums. And, and I worked in the surround, 5.1 surround. Mm-hmm. And I recorded, on some of the sequences, I have recorded different toms for different speakers. So it's 100% panned oh, to fine. each speaker. It's not like a, a soup, you know, where I so, so it's really distinct mm-hmm. uh, where, where it comes from. Which makes, makes it really, um, some scenes are kind of strange to experience in a, in a cinema. Hmm. So that was, that was kind of nice. Other than that, yeah, I, I think we, we took out lots of synthetic sounds also at the last rounds. I had many synthesizers going, but,
0: you know,
2: I muted them all. The thing is with animation is that you when, when you receive the first pictures and they're not that detailed, you know, they're really rough. Mm-hmm. Then then you kind of fill in with lots of sound effects and you, you know, build it up with lots of different layers. But as it progresses and, and when you, we reach that point where there's a texture and lots and lots of details in the picture, then it almost feels too much or easy, easy uh, you know, to get. So it's kind, of, uh, it's kind of a meeting point where the more details there are in the pictures, less you need to have in the music and the sound.
0: So you found that the visuals as they came together sort of directly informed those decisions.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, Mm. uh, yeah, the last rounds were really just stripping out all, all the things that weren't, you know, necessary because, you know, there are so many, I mean, the imagery is just so fantastic and so rich and you, you just, you just want to do what's necessary and, and, uh, and, not fill, fill up everything.
0: So when you started on this project a few years ago now, had you been familiar with Dave's work? Yeah, uh, yeah, actually, because he's been working.
2: I did a cover for the Melvins, uh-huh. uh, uh, which is a band who is on on the same label as I am on mm-hmm. uh, Apecac Recordings, and I had that vinyl from them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was uh, I I knew I knew, but I, I you know I didn't. I just thought it was a great picture, but, uh, mm. was, you know, I had it there. So. It was cool. He's, he's fantastic. I mean, his, his universe and, you know, his style is just uh, something else.
0: I have a few things of his from, like, anthologies, and then a couple of, like, illustration things that are looking into him in the last uh, week or so that I hadn't realized was... I picked up on the style similarities and then sort of connecting the dots, like, oh, that no, 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 was the same guy. So yeah. it's yeah. Uh, it's quite cool to see. And also the the way his style's been kind of used in this film, like sort of transformed into this very kind of like hyper-real CG toy aesthetic almost. I think that's a very interesting angle to take. Yeah. Did you work mainly, I guess, with the director then as far as constructing the music or did you work more on your own? You know, Dave,
2: Dave has been involved throughout the whole mm-hmm. thing we've all been into this and there's been like a core we're, uh, with workers you know with with is the producer and the uh, director uh, Rune Spans mm-hmm. who has also done lots of the computer work and and Dave and me and uh a sound engineer called Frederick so but there there has been many people of course involved but uh we we've, we've been talking about music and the whole thing all the way yeah. i think there the whole atmosphere from the start has been like, finally we have a chance to make something that's, that's really, 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 really special yeah. and cool. So, you know, nobody, I think very early on, we all just we all realized that this will not be a money thing. This yeah. is just, this is pu- pure, uh, you know, let's just see how, how, how far we can take this and, and do it all for the, in the
0: name of art and coolness. It has a very sort of independent artistic sensibility to it. Like, it hasn't been sort of affected by mainstream expectations. Like, I think a lot of the issues with, like, short film production is financiers will want to kind of homogenize the look of the film and the story of the film. Yeah. And certainly what, I, what I've what i been able to gather about this film is there aren't really any kind of compromises about how it's come together.
2: Uh, absolutely no compromises. Excellent. And uh, <laughs> the number of hours... Put into this film, it's it's just uh, it's horrific. It's it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I hope people will see it because there's just so much, and the detail and and the um, the resolution in the pictures is just
0: yeah. insane. Yeah,
2: I think they can you know they can show this thing on, on a, a huge uh, screening of huge cinema, and it would still mm. be very very detailed. Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, it's been hundreds of computers that has done the rendering, and for many years, and mm. you
0: know, it's been insane. So, what was your connection with the filmmakers to begin with, or did it was it more like a sort of standard? Did you audition for it, or was it had you worked together before?
2: I think we uh, we go way back.
0: Oh yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. So Rune did uh, Rune Spans the director. He he worked on a video with me. In 2002, called No You Don't. Oh, yeah. Which was, uh, you know, I'm driving in a car. In a
0: car with the girl, and yeah. she gets older, yeah.
2: Yeah, so, ah, okay. I mean, of course, today, that, that's not a, you know, high-tech, super uh, video. But, I mean, it's still w- nice to watch, of course. But th- the thing is, back in the day, in 2002, it was very unusual to, to have that much... Uh, how can I say? High tech on a on a small music video. Mm. So and that was thanks to Runes Barnes. He was very, very ambitious and uh, yeah. He knows what mm. he wants.
0: So Oh excellent. No, I hadn't real I hadn't made that connection. But no, he,
2: uh, yeah, he was the man who, who did that.
0: I mean also like film in general, like you've it's been a big part of your career as a musician, I suppose. Is this the first time it's been animation?
2: Um no, not really, but it's no, I've been, I've, I've done a few just smaller stuff and, and you know, mm-hmm. for TV. And, but uh, yeah, it's, it's the first, I would say the first uh, super pro, super mm. professional uh, thing. So it works very well with with my music, at least mm. because it's very, you know, there's, it's very easy for me to do animations. Yeah. You know, I, I don't need to hold back on anything. It's, uh, yeah. So yeah i i I certainly hope that it will be more of that because it was it's just super fun hmm.
0: because I found that also as well as the film scores that are explicitly for films, what I have found with uh, quite a few of your records is they're very evocative of film scapes like they, they cre- in a way that a lot of other music doesn't they create sort of visuals like quite cinematic visuals to me. I found, like movie bikers especially, and uh, Bacteria Cult, the recent one. Was film music kind of one of the main areas you were always sort of interested in, or did that kind of come as a byproduct of the
2: um, Well, in the, in the start, it was a byproduct. But then, of course, it, um, mm-hmm. it's just more and more a natural part of me and, and, uh, and what I do. Mm. And, you know, I, I really you know, appreciate the fact that I can make music every day instead of just, you know, releasing an album and spend all my time promoting it, you know, go on tour and yeah. instead I can go to my studio and make music, which, which is what I really want to do, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I don't, my job is not to sell ampetries, it's, it's to make music, so, you know, I, I take whatever comes my way and, and uh, I'm happy that people want to involve me with the, in, in their mm-hmm. projects. So yeah, I, I love making film music, and, and, and also I think I love the fact that if those kind of jobs, they kick me in different directions, like artistically, you know, you, you don't really know what the movie will need in the end, or, mm. I mean, you can have many thoughts about what kind of music you want to do, or you want to do this and this cool new thing, but the imagery demands something else, and you just have to do that, and... I don't know, I kind of like that see that process of seeking stuff and, and, and those moments when you just feel that the imagery and, and the music just melts together as a whole, you know. Mm. Everybody, you, you can't describe, why, you can't explain sometimes why it just happens, but it just, you kind of work towards that, that point. Um,
0: mm. well, it's interesting that you were saying before about how you you went back to the music for this film and kind of stripped it away and made it more percussive, and was that kind of a moment of realizing like when it all kind of fell into place, like by removing the elements or was it just kind of an experiment?
2: It's yeah you, you know you're sitting there with the project and you're mixing and you have all the tracks and hmm. you just experience like intuitively that ah uh, maybe this sounds. Is it necessary or not? And you just try to strip it down one by one, just mute tracks and mute mm-hmm. tracks and mute tracks. And uh, the more detailed the pictures were, the more I took away. Mm-hmm. It, was, uh, it was that was simple. And um, so we had, uh, like, as I said, it was very melodic, the first rounds. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, there was a very clear, a very distinct motive that went to that mm-hmm. kind of went through the whole movie. But it, now it's, it's almost out. It's, it's in the background, like a spirit kind of thing, very ah. low, but it, it's there. But it's, it's not like, you know. Yeah. Uh, now it's, it's just mostly based on uh, free rhythmical uh, drumming. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So A ton of um, melodic stuff has just been thrown out of the window.
0: Would they ever be sort of used like for other projects? Do you think like those motifs, or is it more kind of like you move on?
2: No, I move on. Yeah, it's just uh, that's just a part of it all. I mean, you can't cry uh, 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 when you delete stuff. It's (laughs) it's, uh, you know, I feel it's more like a victory because the simpler the music is, or not simpler, but the more distinct an idea, the more you can, you know. My experience is that it gets better if you, if you remove as, at least on films, if, if, you, if you are able to strip it down to the simple building blocks, and mm. that's always the best thing. So sometimes you have to go those rounds, like yeah. put a lot of stuff on top, and then then you just have to be disciplined and, and take it away again.
0: I think it's a, it's a good attitude to have, I guess, like as a, you know, a harmonious relationship with, you know, the people in charge of the visuals and knowing when to pull back. And, you know, there's definitely, I think, something that could be taken for people who are listening of of considering when the job is being done by the other party. Like, you know, like you say, these sequences when the visuals are doing, you know, enough and the music can sort of act as a sort of, you know, little element of it, but doesn't necessarily have to be something that takes the attention. Which can be a very, like, pervasive and very kind of distracting thing in films where, you know, the music's done wrong. Usually one of the first things that can wreck a film is when the, the composer hasn't sort of known when to say when, or they haven't worked out a proper, like, communication with the director. So, yeah, it's so important. Um, yeah. Yeah. Totally. It's a shame I haven't seen the film Because I'm sure like, once I see it I have a, a ton of other stuff I'd love to like grill about the music I'm also quite curious to see What Mike's involvement will be like Because I know he's done quite a bit of voiceover For games And I'm sort of curious If it's going to be like that Which generally tends to be kind of monstrous Or if it's going to be a little more like Dialogue or narrative So Yeah, you'll have to wait and see yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That was John Eric Cutter a.k.a. Kerda, K-A-A-D-A, if you want to Google him. One of the most versatile musicians out there, uh, and as indicated before, I strongly urge you all to check his stuff out, and uh, his most recent album I mentioned is called Bacteria Cult. It's a collaboration with Mike Patton that came out this year, and it's a beaut. Mike Patton's someone else I always try and steer people toward. Uh, As well as being a voice in Eddie table, he occasionally does voices for animation and video games. He's also one of the most prolific musicians Around. He's been in like 100 bands. He'd done some film scoring himself, and maybe one day he'll dip his toe in the waters of composing for animation. He did write a really amazing record worth mentioning called Suspended Animation uh, with one of his bands, Phantomas, and it's one of my all time favorites of his. It's kind of like the sensibilities of Carl starling mm-hmm. with very hard, heavy metal orchestration applied. If you can imagine that. (laughs) Just trying to imagine that now,
1: Ben. That's um,
0: That's the best way I can describe it. But I'm sure, I think it's on Spotify or Bandcamp somewhere. It's worth uh, checking out. It would sync up really well with any Roadrunner cartoon, Mm -hmm. I'm sure. (laughs) In a similar vein to someone like Mike Patton, another guy who I admire for his prolific bent uh, is Amsterdam-based multimedia artist Rosto who we had on the regular podcast earlier this year. He's based in the Netherlands. He has a really uh, strong relationship with Auteur de Minuit. I would definitely refer people back to that interview because he has a lot of very interesting sort of things to say. He's been at it for for absolutely years, since the dawn of Flash and Webtoons and stuff like that. And uh, his most recent project that's been kind of wowing festival audiences is this ongoing tetralogy of films mm-hmm. that kind of jointly wraps up this ongoing Mixed media graphic novel project called Mind My Gap. But the Tetralogy also kind of acts as a set of self contained films that showcase this quasi fictional band of his called The Wreckers. So the last three films of his uh, are these dense, elaborate films produced with Auteur de Minuit, whose praises I was singing a couple of podcasts ago. They take these The Wrecker songs as a sort of springboard. So they're not music videos as such. Mm. they're like expanded universes that build on the songs themselves the first of the three films uh what will eventually be four films but there are three have been made so far Mm -hmm. Uh, it's called no place like home and you can watch it online as part of the mind my gap series on roster's website but uh, here's the original song from which the film sprung
4: He thought he heard a voice But it's okay
5: I'm just glad You are here He's not
4: dead, he's only dreaming Heard it all before Don't want nothing more Don't need nothing house is not our home. Home is
3: not a house.
4: This house is not our home. Now wouldn't it
0: that was No Place Like Home by The Wrecker's brainchild of Dutch animator and storyteller Rosto, and we'll be hearing more from that universe later on in the podcast. Some more music now from Happy Camper, aka Job Roggeveen, of Job, Joris, and Mariiki. And we've got some coverage up on Squiggly on their wonderful animation work that includes the short films Mute, A Single Life, and Otto. And they make wonderful films that go to places that would otherwise be considered quite dark were they not so appealingly vibrant. And Yob's music fits their visuals like an absolute glove. So here's the opening track, Winnie and Otto, from their recent festival favourite, Otto. Great work there from Job Rogovin, a.k.a. Happy Camper. And you can check out the music of Job Yoris and Mariiki's brilliant animation at showcase.fm slash happy camper. You can also check out the albums on iTunes, bol.com and Spotify. And for the work of the studio itself, head to yobyorisandmaruyiki.nl. I should probably spell that out for you. J-O-B-J-O-R-I-S-E-N-M-A-R-I-E-K-E dot N-L. At this point, I know what you're all thinking. For God's sake, Ben, you're trying to do an animation music podcast here, so when are you going to throw in some Swiss-Japanese electro synth-pop? Well, hold your horses! I've got you covered. Another fun film, another vibrant film that we love over at Squiggly. It's the multi-award-winning Luzern University film, "Ivan's Need" by Manuela Leuenberger, Veronica El Montano, and Lucas Suter, who recruited Christian Fischer and Michiko Hanawa, also known as Tim and Puma Mimi, to take on the music side of things, and a wonderful job they did too. In fact, they've spun it out into a single that embraces the full-on ribaldry of the film, so as a special treat we're going to throw it in here. This is Doopy Doe by Tim and Puma Mimi. <laughs> All right. "Doopy Doe There by Tim and Puma Mimi. It's a song that came from their music for the short film Ivan's Need. And if you want to learn more about the film itself, check out episode three of our other podcast series, Intimate Animation, where we meet the filmmakers Veronica Montano and Manuela Leuenberger. And for more of the work of Tim and Puma Mimi, visit timpuma.ch and mouthwateringrecords.bandcamp.com. On a more tranquil end of the animation spectrum, as people who've been following Squiggly are aware, we have quite a bit of interest in what Google ATAP have been doing. These amazing immersive 360 storytelling projects, Google Spotlight Stories. One of the most effective components of these films is the use of music, so very glad to say that we have some insight from the musicians involved. Wes, have you seen much of the actual films themselves?
1: Yes, obviously they're working on a few at the moment that they um, can't discuss yet. But uh, the ones that have already been published, I've looked at. One that really stood out for me was one that was called Pearl, mm-hmm. and I think that's probably one of the most adventurous in terms of um, how they've actually managed to use the VR technology and how they've also managed to use the sound in a sort of a, uh, a surround side a spherical audio environment. And it's, just in case someone actually hasn't seen it yet, Pearl is basically the story, it's about a car, um, and it uh, starts off with a, a, a young man, sort of in his, uh, I suppose in his sort of late teens, could be early twenties, and one of his passions is playing a guitar, and he goes into his car, uh, stops and plays the guitar, and all you, basically you're, you, from your perspective, from the audience's perspective, you're a passenger in this car. But uh with with your heads with the VR headset on, you can you can look anywhere you want. You could look un, in into the glove box, sit your head out the window, um and the action's happening all around you. Um and time goes on and he gets older, he gets married and has kids, and then eventually his daughter um starts driving the car, gets handed down to her, and then she uh, goes round and plays music, gets herself into trouble hangs out with her friends and it's this very touching story between um about about the life of this car really but also exploring the connection between the father and the daughter and depending on someone's age or or, or their gender or their experiences in life you can take something very different from that story and it can become quite personal but that's a beautiful piece certainly worth watching um the other ones they've done is uh a windy day buggy night um the duet which was uh Animated by uh, Glenn Keane, very famous Disney animator, On Ice. And uh, yeah, and they've, they've been working on other ones as well. Apart from Google Spotlight, they've obviously done some of the, the, the musicians uh, uh, from Polar Music Group who, uh, who did the, uh, the music and sound on some of those. Uh, they've also been working with uh, Nexus Productions, who we've covered before in Squiggly, and also the Ardman VR short uh, Special Delivery. So yeah, there's been a, a lot of interest in, you know, using animation in a in a virtual environment. Um what are your thoughts on that, Ben? Just before we get into the music side, just 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 that as a new medium.
0: Well, I've been doing quite a lot of research and writings about it for a um an ongoing squiggly project that is yet to actually emerge. But I'd also been doing quite a bit of coverage in the lead up. I have a pretty vested interest in it. I think it was one of those things because, as you know, I'd, I'd recently wrote the book about independent animation, and one of the areas where you really feel the limits of books as a medium, as opposed to a blog, which of course I was you know more familiar with, is mm-hmm. that you know things change so much, especially now. Yeah. The expectations of the public and the consumer and the uh, cinema-goer, you know, it's a shifting landscape. I think that Google ATAP, they've regarded this as an ongoing R&D project, yeah, which yeah. Um, has yielded some very interesting results. Like, even if it doesn't necessarily end in something that will set the bar for how all television or film is made... As an experimental process, you're getting some very uh, exciting new experiences out of it. And I think that the lines between, you know, VR and standard filmmaking, the ways in which they're being sort of blurred and bent and stretched, I'm all for. Mm -hmm. Maybe less excited about, say, when they pair it with The Simpsons, as they did recently. Like, that wasn't Mm -hmm. my favorite of theirs, but I thought that, you know... Felix Massey's Rain or Shine was, you know, a, a really lovely exercise. I love how sort of like quaint and family friendly it is because you wouldn't necessarily associate Felix Massey with that. Mm-hmm. Glenn Keane, of course, you know, I think he was the first one they had. We uh, we had him on the podcast and we had a video of, of him talking about that at the time. Each project kind of takes it a different place. And his, I think, was just bringing, you know, those worlds together, the world of traditional animation and vr in a way that hadn't been done before and now you have films that are a little bit more ambitious in the sense that the way that you behave while you're watching it more sort of directly affects the flow of the action the timing of the action Mm -hmm. well also patrick osborne he's uh got a pretty good track record already as well like he did feast a couple years ago with disney I believe that won the Oscar, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And Pearl also, interestingly, uh, shortlisted for an Oscar nomination, which we talked about at the time that the uh, shortlist was revealed. Mm -hmm. In what form will the film take as a contendee? Because you can watch it as a film with all the kind of camera angles taken care of for you, or you can watch it as a film where you're the one kind of in the driver's seat or in the passenger seat. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to see, like that it also has a place on the kind of Oscar shortlist. Mm -hmm. But uh, Patrick, if you go on to Squiggly, there's an interview with Patrick sort of going into the challenges of that and taking it into a new direction. I think that was the first one where they implemented like jump cuts in the uh, flow of the story, which is a hard thing to incorporate in VR. Yes, Quite disorienting, potentially. But what really kind of ties it all together is the uh, lovely song, that they have. It's a song called No Wrong Way Home.
1: Yeah so um, regards to that recently uh, we got to speak to Scott Stafford and also Alexis Hart who are from a company called Pollen Music Group and they're uh, two of the three principal composers of the company. JJ Weiser um, couldn't make it for the interview um, but Scott and Alexis were available. So they gave us some insight on their role on these Google Spotlight stories and I think it was very interesting for them because although they've got a wealth of experience um, in music, um, um, Poly Music Group, just to give you a bit of background, they do work for they do work for film, uh, animation, uh, they do it for uh, TV, games, advertising. Um, they've uh, got some fantastic work. Check out their website. Um, but this was the first time they've sort of had to really work in a way where they're using what, what we'd call a full spherical audio. So for a... Uh, obviously with virtual reality the sound's coming from all around you whereas you know typically in a film we're used to stereo sound or or stereo sort of pseudo surround sound uh, where we're in a fixed point all the time and we're looking into one particular direction at the screen in front of us but with this it's very very different so I think it was a from what they told me it it was a very exciting challenging um but you know steep learning curve and um uh, but when you, when you hear the work and you experience what they've done, you wouldn't have thought they were they were new to this. I mean, they're uh, very very talented blokes. But yeah, obviously the the idea of uh, virtual reality isn't new, nor nor is sound in virtual reality. But it certainly changes the way you need to think about it, um, uh, especially when mixing music and sound design together. And I'm, they'll, they'll elaborate this on in the interview but with audio you've always got music and you've got your sound effects essentially if you can divide them up that way you could argue with animation there's um less of a distinction between the two especially if you're going to look in some sort of carl Stalin work where he will actually use music as a sound effect which you can do in animation whereas you wouldn't do it so much in film unless we're looking into silent movies and that kind of thing but with this it becomes even more of a, a blurred area Is you know you're you're Almost not even looking at visual and audio, you're looking at the sort of an overall experience that you're immersing yourself in, and that's really exciting. That stuff's now coming out in the world of animation, um, but yeah, um, they uh, yeah discussed sort of their processes and uh, you know some of the the complications they went through. But um, I think people that they worked with, I, mean, I know they mentioned uh, Patrick Osborne a bit, and um, you know he was very very supportive and helpful, and uh, certainly there was a good dynamic, a good working relationship between. Themselves and the directors that all the films they've worked on.
0: Why don't we have a listen to "No Wrong Way Home," the uh, the song from Pearl? Yeah, yeah. which I believe was Alexis uh, Hart and JJ Weisler. Yes, Alexis uh, uh, wrote all the lyrics as well for that. He's a
1: very talented songwriter. Um, Also, Alexis, he's got his uh, a new album, "A Perfect Waste of Time," which you can. uh, you can hear, hear from on his website. Uh, he's got some uh, brilliant work, uh, very talented singer-songwriter, as well as a composer, um, and you know doing work for animation and film as well. But um,
0: yeah, let's have a, have a listen to that. And then we'll go into the interview with Scott and Alexis. Mm. So this is No Wrong Way Home, performed by Nikki Bloom and Kelly Stoltz, written by Alexis Hart and J.J. Weisler from the Google Spotlight series film
5: Pearl. I hope you dream Don't feel small And when the wind begins to rise I hope your mask stands straight and tall These are fragile times We blur the lines In the unlikeliest of places We all find a little grace There's no wrong way home One winter coat Two wild eyes all the unspoken love that you carry carrying inside These ain't the calmest days, but you like it that way Won't you rest a while in the storm's peaceful light It ain't where you've been, but where you're going to It's not where you're from, but where you belong And there's no wrong way home There's no wrong way The spiral shell The golden mean You see you're just the sum Of those who have been Down this road before You were expecting more It won't hurt to rest a while The soft shoulder by your side It's not where you've been But where you're going to It's not where you're from But where you belong And there's no wrong way home There's no wrong way home
6: One bread for laughter And one for fear I tied them both together Cause it was always windy here And don't take this wrong but I never knew, were you watching over me, or was I watching over you? It ain't where you've been, but where you're going to. It's not where you're from, but where you belong. And there's no wrong way home. There's no wrong way home.
1: To um, find out more about your company, Pollen Music Group, uh, and I know you obviously do. I've uh, done a lot of work for advertising, TV, uh, film, and animation, and games. But uh, if you could tell me, how did uh, how did Pollen sort of come about? How did you start the company?
7: That's a good question. So we started the company in um, 2010. I, I'll, I'll tell it from my point of view. I um, had been doing a fair amount of freelance work. For other music houses, um, some of the larger ones, in addition to making my own records and being a singer-songwriter, um, but I was I was supporting myself, um, kind of doing ad work through some of these bigger houses, and I started teaming up with um, JJ Weesler, who couldn't make it on t- today. He's a fantastic producer engineer. Uh, we were both had publishing deals with the same outfit, and they put us together to do some writing. So we sort of formed a kind of a writing team. Um, and he helped me win a bunch of spots. So we started to talk about getting more serious and starting our own company. Um, in end of 2009, he said, well, I, I know um, a couple other guys that I think we should talk to. Um, we're going to start this who will compliment what we do. JJ and I, neither of, of us have real, um, orchestral writing chops. And that's where Scott and, and, uh, Dave LaBolt, who was our fourth partner, came to us in different ways. JJ knew Dave, and um, Dave knew Scott. And so we all got together in a room one day, the four of us, like a band. And after about an hour, we had a, a website and a reel, and it was just like, this is going to be cool. It's going to be fun. Um, Scott can talk about his background, but that's how I came to, to work with these guys um, in 2010.
1: That's great. Thank you very much, Alexis. So, uh, so Scott, yeah, it'd be great to hear more about uh, about your background as well.
8: Sure. So I always I, I kind of came from um, kind of a split background of always being in a band and always studying music. Sort of, you had sort of rock and roll, experimental, electronic, all kinds of fun stuff on on the band side, and then you know, really since from a very early age, you know, really passionate about. Bach and Beethoven and great orchestral composers. And and so I was, what's funny is that I was, I've always been doing music my whole life, but um, those two worlds very rarely crossed each other. Mm -hmm. And what's so funny about being a composer these days when you're trying to get gigs is what everyone tells you is something that I've never listened to, um, which is, you know, that you have to have a sound, you have to have like a trademark. And I don't know if you've had, time to listen to any of the, the cues we sent you, but I think you'd be hard pressed to find a lot in common between <laughs> the various projects. Um, I've worked on it. So that was something that i kind of, you know, I, 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 I liked keeping everything really compartmentalized into, you know, rock and roll or electronic music. I discovered my brother's mini Moog, which he, he had purchased to be a jazz lead instrument when he was really young. And I sort of, you know, discovered craft and and mooc synthesizers all at the same time. So I had all these like individual discoveries, but there were always these very compartmentalized worlds with people that were in one and not the other. Mm-hmm. And I would just have a lot of fun jumping in between, you know, like a a period medieval, you know, consort um, one day, and then you know go to uh, Wicker Park in Chicago and play with my death metal band called centaur at night and that's always been my approach to music and so anyway i I had uh my introduction to animation was actually working with doug sweetland um, on his pixar short um presto uh, which came out before wally and was just a fantastic opportunity to to get into um, first of all, just the amazing Pixar process um, and the approach they have to everything they do, whether it's a feature or a short, um, and then get back in touch with the roots of, of my um, interest in, in, in filmmaking and storytelling, which was, of course, Looney Tunes. Mm-hmm. And so for Presto, I had a lot of fun, you know, not just going back and listening to a lot of Carl Stalling and Milt Franklin Um, but listening to their, uh, influences, um, which is, you know, opera and vaudeville. Um, and so that's what really got me my first, you know, really big taste of animation, which I've mostly been working on ever since. And so when Pollen came along, it was this opportunity to, you know, frankly, a lot of it was just purely practical. I I knew within the first hour of meeting these guys, like Alexis said, we, we had a logo, we had a name. Of course, it wasn't the same name we have now, but <laughs> but we had a website, we had a reel in like an hour. And it was just so fun to work with really talented musicians and, and songwriters that had a little bit of overlap, but sort of some specialization. And then it was just this beautiful idea of kind of making the phone ring yourself. Um, it's very hard as an artist to you know, I think people who might be new to the business might think like you get a big gig and suddenly the the phone's ringing and it doesn't happen. You have to be in many places at once. And so it was this opportunity to, to work kind of like Alexis said, in, in like a band where we were all, we had the, you know, we had the drummer, we had the lead singer, <laughs> we had the bassist. Um, we all got along together. Great. And we could do so many things, whether it's a commercial or um, a record or uh a film or an animated short or something for vr um Mm -hmm. it's just something where on each project we might approach it completely as a collective or there might be a clearly like a sort of a principal creative lead and then the others whoever happens to be just kind of shape reshape behind them kind of voltron style
1: that's great because um Mentioning the VR work because um, I have to talk about the the Google Spotlight Stories uh, that you guys have been working with uh, when you've been making these uh, these ambisonic soundscapes for VR. Was that the first time you had approached uh, any work like that? Or have you had um, experience with this sort of full spherical sound work before? So I had done a lot of
8: interactive work uh, with, you know, companies like Apple. Um, And I think anyone who's ever done a theatrical mix starts thinking about, you know, surround sound in new ways, but really the first time I actually remember it was December 12th of 2012. It was actually, again, Doug Sweetland um, had been brought in very early on windy day, which is the first interactive short that the, it was the first thing Google spotlight stories did. It was back when they were actually being incubated in Motorola. These are things that are beyond my comprehension, but basically briefly ATAP, which stands for advanced technology and projects um, was this R and D, um, project that had a very like DARPA like model of very fast prototyping um, and iteration on creative ideas and, and new technologies, um, and they approached Jan Pinkova, the creator of Ratatouille and director of Jerry's Game and someone who's really kind of on the, on the storytelling, um, and you know he really unlocked a lot of the meaning of 360 and VR and the need for interactivity very early on. He was, he was a really amazing person to work with. He hired Doug to help him uh, with animation and story. And they together along with Mark Oftedal, an amazing animator who went on to direct um, buggy night, which was our second spotlight story. The three of them along with John Klassen, the uh, the children's um, author and illustrator who's, also incredibly talented Caldecott award-winning um, author, were putting together the story for Windy Day, which is, you know, how do you tell this story in 360 when we have no edit and we have no cinematography? Um, there's, no, there's no control of camera or edit, which are really the kind of the two principal tools of a filmmaker. Um, and so... I walked in and they showed me this this test where I was just following this hat around. Um and it was just one of those moments that it's hard to describe but um the only thing I could think of is like if you for people who ski and you've been skiing all day and then you ski day after day after day and then you drive home and you have this like um urge to swerve in traffic because you've been so used to turning back and forth or it's a bit like Tetris. Back in the day, if you'd play Tetris for a good like eight hours and then suddenly everything you saw were these interlocking blocks, you know, and you would just think of, you know, it's a way that this, this, your brain can just be kind of shifted where you see things in a very different way. And it's kind of dizzying and disorienting, but also really exciting. Um, it was just something that I had never really seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, and the so that was really the first... The first uh, project that I or Paul and worked on that was in the VR space, and at the time they were making all of their own tech. So, you know, it would be like this very small wish list of features like that w- we would get to on each individual show because you're throwing the creative project process in with software development and things like you wanted to work on as many phones and headsets as possible. Uh, you're throwing that all into this like fiery cauldron um of chaos um and so on each individual short like with Winnie day it was all about interactive music how to write music that can be good if you don't know if it's going to take 10 seconds or 40 to get from point a to point b how can you do an emotional build how can you have music that doesn't sound like loops um especially in a in a jazz idiom which doesn't really do well if you're just kind of repeating a section until you're it's, it doesn't lend itself to interactivity in the same way as other genres do so that was really the 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 um the aim of windy day and then buggy night we introduced the first basic spatial sound because it was so important to follow those little bugs around also in a very jazzy but a different different genre and then it was, and then duet went back to being very interactive and musical. And then it wasn't until Help, um, directed by Justin Lin, where we realized since it was a fixed time length and there was so much happening around you, you got very dizzy and very disoriented, and you didn't. You, it was hard to follow story. It was happening so quickly. And that was when I first, I had just recently learned, started learning. This was back in 2013 when we first started thinking about it um learning about ambisonics spherical sound capture binaural f- filtering so that you can really hear with just a regular this the whole idea is like how can we give give people this incredible experience with a phone they already own and a set of earbuds that came with it or something they took off of virgin airlines um how can they have this incredible experience that actually helps um address all of these fundamental issues like what it what if you miss this part of the story? Well, you can hear 100% of the world, even if you can only see 20 to 30% of it at, at any given time. So my approach from the very beginning was, it's less about sending people cues, like, look over here, do this, do that. It's more about feeling in the world so that if you're looking at the girl and help and there's a creature behind you, Chasing you, you know that's happening without looking at it. You know where the creature is. You know how close it is. You're getting the entire story through sound, without people seeing it. And so, gosh, this was a long answer. Um, but that I just wanted to give you a sense of like the the spherical side of it was. The, it was very new and helped. We had to build a lot of our own tools to make it happen, um, which Pollen actually did. And we had to mix this filmmaking process. How do you do a final mix in a theatrical, you know, dub stage um, when what you're actually doing is going to be on headphones in a set? It, we were sort of just grappling with all of these issues at a time where there weren't ready-made solutions out there and there weren't a lot of examples of, oh, we'll just do what they did. We just had to kind of make it up and, and hope that, you know, make a lot of gambles and hope that they would work. So it was just a very exciting time to be, involved in all of this
1: definitely i mean um i've always been drawn to, to games because of the sound element because you're always in the center of the sound i mean if you were walking around a room uh, and you got close to a speaker you wouldn't get you have to be in the center of the room to experience the sound sort of correctly but in a game you you, you don't get that and and the same way uh, film can lend itself to that same experience through uh through through this through virtual reality uh, which for animation is certainly brought up this new market which is in its infancy now and a lot of people are very uh, very excited about it um, it 's a game changer in how you have to sort of look at things um, from not only just visual but also from the auditory side as well you mentioned um you mentioned buggy night and windy day. I love the way in windy day, especially you had the two characters you had the the mouse and the hat, and you had this kind of question answer exchange in the music between the sort of fiddle and the flute and uh, that was reflected in their actions and uh, that was that was very nice and also you know it, it's nice because there's no dialogue and the music tells the story it, explains their intentions their actions and their emotions and uh, what was what was your sort of thought process uh, sort of through that piece
8: um yeah that was really interesting so the first idea when i walked in was having this sort of jazz forest where all of the sounds happened to be to a beat um whether you know realistic sound design or 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 the score itself they would all be you know interlocking and then that was one of those ideas that was like, right off the bat, it was like, okay, that's too clever, you know? And I don't mean clever in a self-congratulatory way. It's, it's a little too, you know, too thinky. <laughs> um, the tabs, as they say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so the idea was to, to, to try to find something that, oh, this, this was a really interesting thing. So John Klassen's earliest artwork for it um, had a black background. And I don't think he was necessarily thinking of it being nighttime, but of course it had that implication. And so all of my early sketches for it were very, um, sort of nighttimey. And I didn't realize they'd switched to a white background, which of course implies day. And one of the first notes I got from Doug Sweetland back at, it was like, it was a little bit too like wearing sunglasses because the, the jazz was a little bit too cool, a little bit too like 2am. Um, I had no idea what it was talking about And then I saw the artwork and I was like oh okay it made total sense that it just made it it didn't make sense for this mm. stuff that worked on a black background to suddenly be on a white background you you wanted something really simple and so what I was going for is <clears throat> just looking at the pepe the mouse the, the I think the the key thing for music to do there is set up this idea it's a perfect day in a beautiful john Classen forest um, everything is just so everyone's in a good mood. What could, what could possibly go wrong? That's what I wanted the music to say. It's like, it's, everything is perfect. What could possibly go wrong? And then I had these ideas of like the wind sort of every once in a while pushing it harmonically where it kind of like, na, 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 you know, like a little bit of the Wizard of Oz stuff that happens with it. But then what became really clear is that you had these two characters. They didn't have any dialogue. Although they had a voice, um, actually the hat had no voice, it was just sort of the wind um, that we needed something to f- to chase them really closely. Um, and so I spent a lot of time figuring out like what what is there what's the right instrumentation for this um, And I actually happened to be looking at the the, the, the fiddler violinist who we hired uh, Evan Price is this unbelievably talented guy from Northern California that can do anything. But one of his um, amazing talents is improv and gypsy jazz. And I just couldn't believe that I'd been doing this sort of like international search for the right, right right guy. And he, it turns out he lived like five miles from me. So I heard this playing of his that was very sophisticated, uh, but also playful and I loved the sophistication element because that's what Pepe's self-image is. He thinks he's, you know, he he thinks he's quite something. You know, he, I, I picked I, his image of himself, I think, is very gentlemanly, you know, um, very smooth. Um, and then the idea of this flute coming in, it represents the air. It's obviously, it's a wind instrument, literally, windy day. It was kind of an object, uh, obvious thing. And there was this... Uh, and I happened to find um, Matt Eccles, is his name, this great flute player, where there's something a little bit crazy about him and unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And so I found these two guys that could have this kind of conversation with each other. And then, the, and then the idea is, okay, so they're following animation very closely. And then there's this bed, the sort of rhythm section of the music, the you know, guitar and bass, which is actually a, a contrabass, balalaika, a uh, little bit of drums, a little piano they they 're not aware of where they are in the story, so you had to have a melodic upper you know layer that was closely tied to animation, but it had no idea what chord or what beat it was on top of in the music, and so that was just how do you make all of that work and still make it feel light and and fun and not interactive you know just sort of like it happens to be that way
1: oh brilliant i think it's um wonderful and uh even going to sort of the uh, the string swells when the wind picks up in the background and you have that accompanied by the sort of walking bass in the background it, it just uh, it works very well i would i wouldn't have thought um uh you were working that much in in the dark when you when you were doing that you know i you know it just uh, comes together very very nicely.
0: Was well, from the Google Spotlight Stories project, "Windy Day," directed by Jan Pinkava, composed by Scott Stafford of Pollen Music Group, and we'll be hearing more from Scott and Alexis later in the podcast. So this is something, as we said at the beginning of the podcast, is something that we we'll potentially want to expand into a longer series, and I think that mm-hmm. what has been absolutely the most valuable contributor to evolving and spinning off the other squiggly podcasts has been the audience feedback Mm -hmm. so off the bat i think it would be great to solicit some thoughts and ideas from the uh, listeners whether or not you're a composer yourself and would like to get in touch or if you're interested in uh, working with composers or hearing more of what's out there or what other kind of areas would appeal to you please by all means get in touch uh you can hit me up at ben at squiggly.co.uk of course we're on twitter at squiggly and where's your email is?
1: Uh, my one is, is wesallard at gmail.com currently. You can find me at uk, and you can uh, send a message on there as well if you want to.
0: If inspiration strikes or any thoughts occur, definitely give us a shout because uh, we're quite keen on giving this a go, I think beyond just a one-off thing. Mm-hmm. Just from initial putting the feelers out, there's a lot of potential here. And I also am very fond of the whole like music playlist angle as well. It's the same impulse of, like, putting together the curated screenings. It was like a good mixtape. Mm. It's nothing quite like forcing one's taste onto an unsuspecting listener. On that note, let's have some more music, shall we? We've got some more Happy Camper tunage for you by Mr. Yob Roggeveen of Yob, Yoris and Mariiki. now. Here's The Accident, another piece from the soundtrack to the studio's 2015 short Otto. There. Once again, you can check out more of Yob's work at showcase.fm slash happy camper. And we also have a video interview with Yob as well as Yoris Oprins as part of our Lightbox series, talking about their work as a studio. If you fancy searching that one out. Now, a little while back, we caught a film called Wackadoo by Canadian animator Benjamin Arkan doing the rounds. It's a wonderful music-driven celebration of retro animation principles, embracing the most appealing animation traditions established by the likes of Ubi Works, the Fleischer Studios, and Termite Terrace, right through to Ren and Stimpy. And although a musician himself, Benjamin had a very particular jazz style of music in mind for the film that was ultimately put together by Montreal composer François-Xavier Paquin. Here's some of what he came up with. (laughs) we <laughs> That was Crazy Dance, alternately known as Crazy Chase, composed for the Canadian short film Wackadoo. You can learn more about the film in our feature on director Benjamin Arcand over on Squiggly, and check out composer Francois Xavier Paquin's site at frankfunkmusique.com, and you can hear more of the music at soundcloud.com frank-funk-musique. Earlier on in the podcast, we played some of Shane Holly's music written for his brother Alan's beautiful film, Coda. Let's have another piece from that one. That was from Shane Holly's score to the short film Coda by director Alan Holly, And the film is online in full at andcodafilm.com. It's nine minutes, very much well spent, trust me. And once again, you can check out Shane's site at shaneholly.ie. Now let's go back to Wes's interview with Scott Stafford and Alexis Hart of Pollen Music Group. Where we left off, we were hearing about their work on Windy Day, so we'll rejoin them now to discuss Buggy Night. But uh, first off, here's some music composed by Scott for that very project.
1: Buggy Night as well, um, what I liked about that when you have the, the searchlight uh, following the characters around, it actually uh, it sort of, um, the music also draws you to that location. And I like the, the choice of the, uh, the instruments used which, uh, which fit the characters well and, and their actions. That so You've got the, the pizzicato strings as the uh, bugs run away to try and evade the frog that's trying to eat them. And it has a structure of almost someone telling a joke, you know, where each phrase sort of fits into a, a different part in the story and it allows the film to, to breathe sort of thing. I mean, how, how, how was that one? So that, that was as really
8: kind of exactly as you put it, I think, um, the structure of the story and the conceit of your gaze is a flashlight looking around and that it really is a three hundred and they don't move you. Um, so, you know, from in windy day, you go over a Creek and you go up a tree and you go inside the tree and you go up into uh, you know, you, you move people around, which turns out to be a tricky thing to pull off in VR without making people very sick. Um, in, Bug- in Buggy Night, it was, you're in one spot in the story and there is this sort of set up, gag, punchline, set up, mm-hmm. gag, punchline. So, you know, it's it's got this very simple structure where the idea, in my mind, I wanted to see it as, like, you know, I call it frog noir. It was this sort <laughs> of, like, murder. You know, it was like... You know, it, it's, it seems very light. It's just bugs and frogs. But I was trying to think about it from the bug's perspective.
3: Mm-hmm.
8: Um, like, the frog would be their apex predator, like a T-Rex. And I wanted it to have this kind of cool, but also, like, yeah, noir element to it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, we just, we worked with some really great Musicians. Oh, just one thing about the sound design. Mark Oftedal, the director of it, came up with this great idea that the the that a the the bugs would be speaking in Morse code. Okay. Which they actually do.
1: Ah.
8: And what's amazing is some people figured it out and have actually tried to do transcriptions of it. Mark wrote these hilarious bug haikus. I'll just give away maybe one of them because <laughs> it really is a lot of work to try and figure it out.
1: Yes, I imagine.
8: But it's like every scene is like. You know, it's this little haiku. It's you know, Bob, where's Bob? <laughs> you know, it's just like you know, it takes a long time to do it, and then there there it has this little chattering. And for that sound, um, I did it all using uh kazoo. Okay. And something funny happens to your mouth when you are doing kazoo sounds for two days straight. It starts to uh I think I've it took about a year to recover from that. <laughs>
1: Oh, that's commitment <laughs> to the role, you see. It's commitment. Uh, yes. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Oh, pretty. Well, Well, that brings that us on nicely on to um, the duet, um, where you obviously got to work with uh, the, the Disney legend that is, uh, is Glenn Keane, and with these uh, beautifully uh, hand-drawn animation. And uh, Glenn Keane has worked on all sorts of things from the 1970s through Disney, um, and even animated characters such as you know Ariel, um, Aladdin, and Pocahontas from some of the you know greatest Disney movies of the Renaissance period. Um, but yeah, I, I love the fluidity in, in, in animation, how you reflected that in your music and gave it this, uh, very dreamlike memorable quality. The, 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 the melody is also very memorable, which was, which was great. Um, and you had this very, um, light sort of high end choral part, but that was sort of complemented with other parts and you got the warmth of the cello and the, the piano that glues things all together. Uh, what was, what was that project like for you guys?
8: So first of all, just a little bit of, about. Glenn Keene, you introduced him really well. I just wanted to add a little bit to that because he's a, a pretty pretty special person. Um it was a little bit like I, I recently saw uh Paul McCartney in concert, and it was just this um this moment where you realized how this songwriter was just part of your life. And you and and you kind of forgot how many songs that he's written and even like songs from the wings period that you, you never bought a record. You, you knew every word. Um, and it was, it was similar to working with Glenn Keane. I'm not an animator. I'm a huge fan of animation, but I never would have known, you know, I knew my Tex Avery and Chuck Jones, but beyond that, I never would, uh, I just wouldn't know about someone like Glenn Keane, but meeting him and and seeing the scenes that he had animated and seeing like you know the moment where the beast um, is we think he's dead and then he turns back into a man, I mean it's just it's it's like it's it's like Michelangelo. I mean it really is, especially when you see the pencil tests before it was cleaned up. And I mean it's just extraordinary stuff. So I was very aware of that and trying not to let it, you know. <laughs> Uh, intimidate me too much, but what was so great is that um, his first test, which was a very, it was about a 40 second excerpt, um, was just so expressive and it was very inspiring. Um, we all came up with a lot of great ideas for it and ended up going with really the, the simplest one. Um, simple, I think in a, in a good way. It was just sort of you know very honest and, and followed the line in a right way, and uh, actually, Alexis sings the the male vocals on that very beautifully, um, and Megan Slankard sings the 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 girl, and their their two voices were were incredibly important to the whole thing of just having it human, having it feel very human, hearing the human breath, which is a big element in it, um, um, and really, I found that you know, he, he's so innately musical. I kept finding moments where just following his line almost literally would result in a really nice musical gesture, um, and have this kind of, you know, natural rhythm to it. So it was, it was a very, uh, special project to work on.
1: Mm-hmm. And how, how, I mean, obviously you've got a, a great experience as a, as a lyricist as well, Alexis and, uh, you've, uh, released many albums and, uh, uh, obviously, another one as well that um, you did was obviously Pearl um, with uh, director Patrick Os- Osborne, I believe, mm. um, and I, I gather you wrote the lyrics uh, for that for that one as well. Um, what was that like? Because that's, that's such a um, that's such a powerful film. Um, you know, t- the story that's told through you know of the of the bond between the the father and the daughter, and it kind of has it's kind of a circular story. It's absolutely brilliant. How what was what was that like for you?
7: Well, i like to say that, you know, Patrick Osborne did a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of the storytelling. So when we began working on that, we were starting with an animatic and we didn't know exactly how the story was, um, you know, the original idea, the, the the automobile Pearl goes through some, some different iterations and has different lives. And that, you know, through, um, process of making this, that got sort of distill down to its essence, like what really needs to happen in this story. Um, along those lines, we ended up writing many more verses than we knew would ultimately make it into the to the film. Um, and the idea there was to explore this dynamic of the father and the daughter from different angles, sometimes clearly from the father's point of view, sometimes clearly from the daughter's point of view. But we also wanted... Um, some of the lyrics and some of the verses to be um, able to sort of uh, change their meaning based on who was singing it. And that was an interesting um, process. And and we found that um, you could take a lyric that um, may may have been, um, you know, was I watching over you or were you watching over me? depending on who says that lyric, it has a different weight and a different uh, gravity. Um, and and pro- I think provides a different um, response to whoever's listening to it as well, if you're a daughter versus a father. Um, so we we wrote what we called, dubbed the Hallelujah version um, after the Leonard Cohen song, or maybe it was more like the American Pie version, I don't know. I tend to put <laughs> Leonard Cohen on and, much higher pedestal, um, but um, we ended up using five verses, and um, out of the twelve. And Patrick Osborne, we worked very closely to, um, you know, match the verse to the scene. Um, well, he did that; but that was his work, um, and and then sort of weave the the story around the lyric, and the lyric around the story, and in the way that he did, that was so effective.
8: Yeah, one of the one of the challenges there is that we weren't sure who was going to be singing what. We did, we weren't exactly sure what scene was happening in the background. We knew that it needed to sound like a self contained song, um, and Alexis did an amazing job with the lyrics in that way and this, the structure of it. Um, but it was sort of like mixing post production and pre production elements, where you you kind of had to. Really, just trust in, in, in Patrick to know he, he sent us this, this incredible story graph, which um, if I can, I can try and send to you. It's just a funny visual where it's it's an unbelievably detailed like like you have to, you can't see it on a screen all at once, and it's just like you know it, it, it looks like it was half done in Microsoft Excel. It's kind of beautiful. He just plotted out the arc of each character, what's happening in the scene, what lyrics could go here, who could be singing it. Um, And it was the kind of thing, like at first we saw it and it was just like, oh my God, (laughs) like this is not how you write a song, looking at a graph like this. But then you you looked at it and it was actually one of the most helpful things you could get in that moment where you're really kind of shooting in the dark. You don't have a full film to look at. You don't have the full storyboards yet. Um, And it was kind of amazing. Like it basically helped us structure the song, know where we should, you know, put the bridge and what and where we needed to build from one to the next. And so then, at that point, we then had the song with the song, which we pretty much fully produced um, and worked with um, Nikki Bloom and Kelly Stoltz, the amazing. They're great performers, singer-songwriters, uh, recording artists in their own right. Everyone should listen to their stuff. They're amazing. And the interesting thing is he wanted to cast them, I think, for a sense of the authenticity. He heard something in their voices. They're not professional actors. They're not session musicians. They're, you know, they're recording artists of themselves, and they had the right quality that that Patrick really liked. So we fully produced the song, and in many cases had to record, especially Kelly, in, you know, I think we ended up using, bringing him into three different studios and had to do a lot of lo- location recordings where we recorded him using, you know, spherical sound field mics, um, and you know, in a car, we had to set up the entire scene as you see it to capture the acoustics to capture. Cause everyone knows what a car sounds like. In fact, people know what a car sounds like when a door is open. Um, versus when it's closed. It's something that it's just part of our lives. It's a huge part of American culture and storytelling, you know, the road trip. So we knew that the car was something we had to get right, that people would notice it if it didn't sound the right way. So we had to set up all these scenes where he would perform the whole song, or at least a big chunk of it, with his back to us, with the front door open, um, you know, for the busking scenes, and he would then... You know we and we took all kinds of acoustic measurements in the car. It was really quite a lot of work where we had to kind of set up scenes like a do location. It was almost like shooting with a microphone um, for all this stuff so that it would all all end up working and feel immersive and that was really the first time we had kind of taken all of our core tools which is you know making a great stereo recording people love stereo music for good reason it's comfortable it's great it works for when you don't necessarily want to spatialize things you just want to feel the score or we had spherical recordings where you would really be in the scene and you you know you would know even if you were looking away you would hear that sarah the daughter is teaching the song to her bandmates um in a parking lot um and then we also had object-based sounds where you have these virtual speakers that you attach to a rig in the space, like there would be one attached to Sarah and one attached to Dad, um, to just get a really a, a good sense of spatialization and, and clarity that you wouldn't get in a richer sound sphere um, or sound field. So we kind of used you know, stereo and object-based stuff and sound field stuff and put it all together into something that hopefully feel somewhere between an animated short, almost like a documentary with like uh, sort of verite moments um, and like a great, almost like a music video. Um, so it was an interesting line to cross, but just going back to what Alexis was talking about it, what, the most important thing throughout the whole process is it's gotta be a good song. You can't get like lulled into the interactivity and all the new technology. It's got to just work as a song and uh, with great lyrics that help the story, but not too much on the nose. All that, all that good stuff.
7: Mm. Yeah, it's um picking up on something Scott said. We this song had to move through being a, a troubadour solo acoustic guitar to eventually what it would sound like if it was produced and on the radio and maintain its sort of core, um, you know, maintain a smooth transition between those two things. That was one of the big challenges. I'm I'm sending you along some pictures. I don't know if they're coming through some of that recording that we did. It's kind of cool. Um,
1: yes, I've got one here
7: as we're talking, we can send you some more stuff as well afterwards, but, um, just to get a sense, this is, this one is nice here. This was, um, Kelly singing outside the car with the microphone in the car. So the, in the passenger seat of, of what is my Subaru, um, there's a Tetra mic and this was, um, we had him singing the scene where, um, He's busking and the door's open. And so we wanted to capture what that would sound like. Like what Scott says, the door's open. The
8: music source is coming from outside the car. What does that sound like? We need to get it right. So The funny thing is, when you do something as innocuous in animation as change where the camera is, um, all of a sudden, we realized that those recordings wouldn't work. Because all of a sudden, you've, you've changed the geometry of the space, which you can hear. And all of a sudden, like, let's say you take the camera. This was a, a really interesting thing about the project, which is that we did, um, you know, cu- very customized um, versions that were theatrical. Um, a version that was for so called big VR, like a Vive, where you have six degrees of freedom. And you can move anywhere within the set. You could poke your head out the window. You can look through things. You can feel like you're embodied. And then we also did a version that was sort of uh, you know like for cardboard and for for mobile users where it's sort of like the magic window where you have three degrees of freedom you, you're free to look around anywhere you want but you don't move you know front to back or up and down um, so it was really interesting working on all these versions and we found that when we were doing the theatrical version first of all he patrick reshot the whole thing literally he You know, you had all the sets built up and he just had a device and basically reshot the whole short um, for the theatrical version. And he would have fun with the camera. He would actually move it outside of the car. And it's it's a very different version. And we realized that, A, none of those recordings worked spatially. And, B, what people want in a theater is very different from what you want in VR. Mm -hmm. It's a different type of immersion. It's less literal in a theater. You have, you at least have the, the, um, it's a creative choice how much you want to immerse someone literally in the space, but it can be very unnatural feeling to feel in a large theater where the screen is up in front of you. Um, it's, it's going it to be a very unnatural thing. If you feel like you're in a car in the theater, it just doesn't make sense. And it's not, it's, it, I wouldn't call that a, a pleasant feeling most of the time. Um, Whereas in VR, you had to do that. If you weren't doing that, then that was actually very disorienting. Um, And so we found that we used virtually no ambisonic recordings at all in the theatrical version. So it wasn't just a a remix. We literally used different recordings um, for each version.
1: It's a new, uh, it's a new way of exploring animation, and uh, I know many animators and many many companies are are really getting into this now, using the uh, the Vive heads, headsets. It seems to be the uh, preferred preferred model.
8: Well, it's so interesting on the Vive because, for example, what we found we we've we've done a lot. Um, Alexis and JJ and myself and a lot of people that work at Spotlight Stories, we've been to a lot of you know conventions and we've done a lot of. Um, uh, you know, demos for people where we actually see, unlike a movie where you just make the movie and then hundreds of people see it in a theater at any given time, it's a one-to-one thing. One person is taking it in, or if we're lucky, we have two or three devices, so the line can move a little faster. But you're literally seeing the decisions, the creative decisions, whether people realize that or not. They're they're the cameramen in that world. They're the they're the cinef- cinematographer, um, and you see what they look at and you see how they they respond. And it was so interesting with the Vive version. You see a lot of things that, frankly, are unintended because people can move. Um, People think that the character is looking at them when it actually isn't, or it just happens to be. But one of the really interesting things is you could actually move from the front seat to the back and have a very different feeling experience, one where you probably identify more with a parent Mm -hmm. in front and one where you identify with the kid. So it, it, it was very interesting to and very um, kind of mind blowing to witness it in VR and to see witness it in, in six dof the kind of annoying uh, way of saying six degrees of freedom. Um, It was really interesting to see it that way and just see, how differently you can experience it. And if you wanted to, you could just look at the set pieces. You could put your head, a lot of people just like put their head in a shopping bag because they could, and they're probably not getting the, the most sort of nuanced story experience that way, but they can do it. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a, that's, that's a new thing for, even for people who have been working in VR for, for a few years.
1: Thank you very much. And I hope you uh, continue to work in animation from a, uh, a, a musical auditory sort of perspective
8: of course no I, I can't imagine pulling out
7: and lastly pollen continues to work um on uh some tv shows here in the u.s that are non-animation um we are doing some commercials and the usual bevy of, of um projects that a, a music and scoring house will take on to pay the bills and hire to keep live. the lights
8: <laughs> on Yeah
1: absolutely and with christmas around the corner you need all the lights on you can you can have so uh, <laughs> absolutely lots cool. of those well i hope you both have a have a fantastic uh, christmas and thanksgiving and um a successful 2017 um,
8: likewise thank you very much this was a yeah. lot of fun great talking to you okay. great talking to you thanks guys.
0: So that was Breathless, the music composed for Glenn King's contribution to Google Spotlight Stories duet by Pollen Music Group. And preceding that, of course, the interview with Scott Stafford and Alexis Hart from Pollen. Very interesting stuff. I have a feeling that uh, should this podcast be picked up for a series, that won't be the last we'll be hearing from Pollen Music Group.
1: They were very keen to sort of chat to us again. Mm. Um, So, uh, yes, I hope so we can discuss, you know, more uh, developments from Pollen.
0: Elsewhere, I think that I think it would be lovely to kind of do a little bit more overall kind of coverage of the music side of things on Squiggly in general. We do have a few bits and pieces here and there. Uh, one chat that unfortunately, I think just because of circumstances, couldn't get recorded. But I know that you talked to the people who did the music for Storks this year. Yes,
1: yes, that's right. Jeff and Michael Danner, who are brothers, actually, and they worked together. I'm sure a lot of people have brothers who uh, they couldn't work with. <laughs> Yes, they did the music for Storks, and also very recently, as well as Storks, um, The Good Dinosaur. Ah. He's done lots of other things for live action, as is Jeff as well. But yeah, more recently they've been working together on animation, which is brilliant. Um, and yeah, I got a chance to um, obviously find out what they thought of Storks, and um, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to some of the uh, the soundtrack or from the film. Have you... Have you Did you
0: get a chance to see Storks? I never saw the film, but I did. uh, The soundtrack was online, and I did Mm, give that mm -hmm. a uh, a listen. I think it was on Spotify. Very nice work there. When I watch a film, especially as I get older, I'm actually no, it was always the case. I think even when I was a kid, so much hinged on the music, even if I wasn't kind of consciously aware of it,
3: Mm, mm -hmm.
0: and in animation especially. Just how, you know, and of course it's it's always been a part of, like, the, the Disney universe. Definitely. Like, you know, it's it's much more of a rarity that a Disney film wouldn't rely on its music mm-hmm. in, in many respects. I was just kind of reminded of that. We were talking a little bit about the music in Aladdin a couple mm. of podcasts ago and how much that just kind of hooks you into the film.
1: Especially the, the songs as well. The use of how the lyrics are... How the lyrics are written very, very carefully mm. it makes it very, very memorable. Mm. In fact, I think most people would agree, when you think of the, the Disney songs of the, of the Renaissance period, uh, things like Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and uh, The Little Mermaid, Pocahontas, it's, it's the songs that stick in your minds. Mm. For me, they act as cues for things that are visual. I suppose everyone is different. We're all visual creatures, of course. But yeah, I think it is the songs that really make them magical. And I think perhaps maybe if you'd agree with with, uh, films like Moana and Frozen, it feels Mm. like maybe Disney's going into a a new period where they're they're revisiting that idea of of bringing theatre back into animation, you know, uh, bringing Broadway back into animation a little bit, in a different way. But it seems like, you know, music and song is becoming a a stronger part of of their films again, their animated films again.
0: Yeah, it has that very contemporary show-tune vibe. Mm, like uh, orchestrated show tunes with a very sort of pop music sensibility to it.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, although that Your Welcome song that uh, mm-hmm. a lot of people have been talking about, that one felt actually a little less in the pop camp and more in the musical theatre camp. Mm-hmm. That kind of like sort of playful delivery of the lines and the kind of back and forth and stuff. Whereas Let It Go, that was a pop song with a string section, mm-hmm. to be honest. Like, that was like a, a, a proper like axis of awesome, like, you know, <laughs> really, really pleasing, marketable chord changes.
1: You can draw similarities in some way. Um, but yeah, I know what you mean. The Frozen have really ticked all the boxes for how to make a song stick in your mind, and they've used all those um, techniques you'd see more in popular music and pop music. There's, there's no sort of moody film score music in there.
0: I'd be interested in sync as, uh, obviously, the time of year... This, this film always gets an airing. I'd be interested in your thoughts on where something like Nightmare Before Christmas lands in that renaissance. Because at the time, that wasn't really considered a Disney film. Mm. Like, I guess, I think it was Touchstone that came out at, through. You know, when they show it now, it's, it's Walt Disney Presents, like something happened in the interim that it's completely a Disney film now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as a subsidiary, it was always a Disney film, but it was never kind of marketed as such at the time mm. but certainly that's another film where the music really imbues in it a, a lot more staying power yes. than it might otherwise have
1: yeah the music is, is very very thematically isn't it it is kind of it's it almost identifies the film it um but it is it's it's, it's like a, a theater production isn't it really on the screen mm. which i used to be involved with when i was younger and you know music is a a huge part of that and it, it acts as the Something that that drives a narrative and steers it and develops it and provides a momentum for everything. And uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's it. Night Before Christmas is a, is a bit darker to your typical Disney film. Although they do have their their dark elements in there occasionally. And uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, the villain will always <laughs> have a a good song.
1: Oh yes, yes, definitely. Uh, they probably always had the best songs, I would say. Um, <laughs> in many
0: Definitely, the one in the Lion King was pretty good. Yes. For some reason, I don't know why, but in the the follow-up, like, straight-to-video Aladdins, they'd give Gilbert Gottfried a song or two. (laughs) Why the fuck would you do that? Man has the worst voice in the world. But strangely, even though in the sequel Disney films, even though the animation was always shockingly poor compared Mm. to the ones that would come out in theatres, the music was always quite well done. Yeah, it's interesting
1: that, isn't it? Uh, maybe it's because us, us music people, we always give it, give it our all, regardless, of, <laughs> you know, regardless of budget. You always want to do the work to the best of your ability. I mean, I mean, you'll know from um, going off off on a tangent slightly from working as a um, as an animator and as a musician, as a composer or an, or a sound designer and, a, and an animator. You know, if you're working on a uh, a video that's say one and a half to two minutes in length, and you've got a, yeah, you're doing some music for that. Um, granted it's going to take much longer to do the animation and to do with the visual sides than it is to perhaps do the piece of music. But um, it's also in those situations normally you have less time to do the music and um, you know how how time constraints and budgets work and things. Um, but yeah I've always found that I've always um, always tried to do what's the best of my ability. I know animators do as well, I'm not saying they don't. But yeah, in some ways, you've got. Uh, I, I would say sometimes you've got an easier job than the, than, the, than the animators. Anyone who's doing something visual, that's the first thing that everyone's drawn to. Um, you can get away with a little bit more in the music, I think. Certainly from mm-hmm. the work I've done, um, you get a lot of a lot of freedom. You're sort of trusted to do a job, and you do it. There might be a few changes. Um, whereas I imagine clients can be a bit more picky when it comes to anything that you do that's visual. If that kind of makes mm-hmm. sense, and. Uh, you've uh, you've got to, um, uh, you know, sort of cross a few more T's and dot a few more I's along the way, um, then perhaps you have a music... Although I have, you know, had experiences where it's been... It has been very, very difficult, and many d- new iterations have been required, you know, when, mm. when doing a piece of
0: music for, uh, for a film. Um, but, yeah, where were we again? I've gone completely off on a tangent. I mean, the point, it brings <laughs> to mind what John Curder was saying about how working on the absence of any table was sort of an exercise in restraint, in a sense, how, you know, the back and forth ultimately yielded something a lot less melodic and more percussive. Mm -hmm. And that kind of took him, you know, definitely in that direction and it possibly, you know, there was a kind of self-discipline element in having already developed certain motifs for the project Mm -hmm. and then just moving on and leaving them behind. I found that quite interesting because that's the kind of thing that a good collaboration between filmmakers and musicians can really yield is Mm -hmm. something that uh, you look back on and it wasn't necessarily what you set out to do initially.
1: Yes. Yes. I mean, I think it's always a... It has to be a collaborative um, process, isn't it, between a a musician, an animator, or a composer and a director, however you... Whatever the relationship is or the scale of the project is. And ultimately, it is... um, when you're doing music for a film, it's not your film, but you're 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 while working on something together, and you can give creative input sometimes to things that are visual as a composer, and vice versa. Vice versa, um, you have to respect um, the director's decisions, um, and you have to work towards achieving their vision. Um, but along the way, depending on their experiences and how they work, um, you can be more hands-on, or sometimes they can trust you to sort of say they they want
0: this to be made, but not sure how to get there,
1: and your job is to make that
0: happen someone who had some excellent insight into that relationship as a composer starting out is phil brooks who talks a bit about it in my book uh, phil was a guy whose music for but milk is important opened the podcast uh, he's also done some work for british animation director trevor hardy aka Full hardy films notably the short film three's a crowd so i thought we'd play some of that too and then we'll hear something else from but milk is important Was Phil Brooks there, composer for the short film Three's a Crowd by Trevor Hardy. And you can find out more about the film at foolhardyfilms.com. That was a little excerpt of his music for it there, followed by a live lute performance. uh, Some of his score from But Milk is Important, and that last one you can see video of on his own website, philbrooks.com. Lovely stuff, and Phil, as I mentioned before, had some excellent insight into the creative relationship between animators and composers in the squiggly tie-in book "Independent Animation: Developing, Producing, and Distributing Your Animated Films." If you want to check that out too. Another thing that brings to mind, actually, and this can uh, we can maybe hear some more music on the on the heels of that. Did you see the second late night work club? No. Um... Well, I would uh, I would suggest, and uh, I would extend this to anyone listening, uh, it's online now, it's completely free to watch, it's all on Vimeo. Treat yourself, because it's a good 40 minutes of excellent, oddball, independent animation, <laughs> and some wonderful music in that. Uh, I thought I'd play a bit of the music from that anthology oh, lovely. in this special. Because in the new year, in one of the other podcast series, the independent animation series, uh, there's going to be a whole episode dedicated to Late Night Work Club, So I've been talking to a lot of the animators involved in that. Mm -hmm. So I thought it would be a nice thing to kind of also give some love to the musicians involved. So I thought we could hear from Skillbard, who did music for several films in the collection, and I'm going to play the score for the film Love Streams, directed by Sean Buckaloo. That was Skillbard's music for the film Love Streams, director Sean Buckaloo for the late-night work club anthology Strangers, which you can watch in full online right now. And if you want to learn more about the work of Skillbard, visit skillbard.com. Well, thank you very much for checking out this uh, podcast special animation composed it's been a lot of fun putting it together and hearing from the various artists out there who are bringing music to animation Mm -hmm. and uh, of course i know that there are a lot of other people out there who do likewise so by all means do get in touch we're also you know actively putting feelers out this end but i think we have a mutual more the merrier attitude about the whole venture definitely definitely Mm -hmm. and it is nice getting the sense that we reach different people with different ventures so hopefully this will bring in some new listeners as well as appealing to some of our regular crowd. But yes, Wes, thank you very much for uh, joining me. And uh, Thank you,
1: Ben. This was good fun, wasn't
0: it? Good uh, good end to what's been a f***ing awful year. <laughs> <laughs> end on a song, is what yes, I always yes. say. End on something uh, musical and melodic. You can find this episode's guests, John Carter, at kaada.me. And Scott and Alexis are part of pollenmusicgroup.com. And you can check out the SoundCloud link or the accompanying Squiggly article for a full playlist and links to contributing composers. So thank you to John Eric Curder and to Scott Stafford and Alexis Hart of Pollen Music Group for being our first animation composed interviewees. First, but hopefully not the last. All being well, we will see you in 2017.
1: I've been Wes Allard. You could find me at wesallardmusic.co.uk
0: and, uh, and Twitter at wesallardmusic. And I've been Ben Mitchell, you can find me at ben-mitchell.co.uk, facebook.com slash benmitchellcreative, and music-wise you can check out soundcloud.com slash ben-mitchell. I also have a couple of Bandcamp outfits, strivelpeter.bandcamp.com, it's named after the old German storybook, and I also have a newly released, not especially Christmassy EP for the holidays at silverfish-pb.bandcamp.com. I'm also on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell. Squiggly is at Squiggly, and of course our regular site is squiggly.com or .co.uk, whatever's your pleasure. Keep checking back, because we've got lots of fun stuff planned for 2017. And Wes and I will leave you with another wonderful piece from The Wreckers, a song that accompanies and shares the title of Rosto's latest short film, Splinter Time. Until we meet again, happy holidays, happy new year, and happy animation.
4: Feel the winter. In your troubled hair It's that winter Bubbling up that gazing stare Sip up and let's dance to the sound Of breaking glass And the splinters Carried by the careless breeze are delivered with kamikaze pilot sneeze. Zip up and let's dance to the sound of breaking glass. No booze has the boot to shake up the Cherished this grim peak as it was Then crushed this ugly mirror In a big heart-breaking blast I idolized and fetished The splinter.